Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Billions of dollars are spent each year on foreign aid and global development. In the past, the exact amount of aid that is being spent, where it is being spent, by whom it is being spent, and to what end the aid is serving has been very difficult for outsiders to parse. But that has been changing in recent years. Aid agencies and government and multilateral institutions like the World Bank and the United Nations are becoming increasingly transparent. And that's not least because they have been spurred to do so by my guest today, Gary Foster. He is the executive director of Publish What You Fund, the global campaign for aid and development transparency. The organization publishes an annual index of 47 aid agencies from the public sector and private philanthropy, which assess how open each entity is in regards to its operations and disbursements. In our conversation, Gary Foster explains why transparency in aid is so important, and he identifies some of the entities that rank highest and lowest on the Aid Transparency Index. The data compiled by Publish What You Fund also offers a very good bird's eye view of aid and development spending. So we spend a good bit of time in this conversation discussing some of the broad trends that he has seen in recent years among donors. And this includes the impact of COVID-19 on foreign aid and development assistance. The increasing willingness of aid agencies to open up their books to outside scrutiny has been a very important trend in recent years, and I was glad to speak with Gary Foster about the implications of a movement towards greater aid transparency. Also, at the end of this conversation, we discuss the implications of the British government's decision to combine their aid and development portfolios under one new umbrella. And that's very significant because the UK's Department for International Development is widely regarded as one of the most effective aid organizations. And there are questions over whether or not combining the UK's aid and development portfolios might undermine the efficacy of DFID. I should say, despite the uh, subject matter, this conversation is accessible to a broader foreign policy audience, which is ultimately you know, my goal with a lot of these kinds of uh, conversations and episodes. So thank you. All right, here is my conversation with Gary Foster of Publish What You Fund. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So I think for a long time now, there's been a recognition that if we want to have 
true accountability of aid. And that means in terms of the citizens in the countries that are providing it, as well as the citizens who live in the countries that are receiving it. If we want to understand the efficiency of aid in terms of the economic return on, on what we're investing and the impact that that's making, that we need to have access to a whole bunch of data and information about aid itself. And that includes transparency around the processes that, that aid goes through. So how it is, um, how decisions are made about how it's prioritized, how, for example, procurement uh, of, of aid is, is done um, when INGOs or private contractors are, are, are bidding for work to undertake aid projects. But also then the detail of, uh, you know, where is the project taking place? What sector is it, is it in? Um, how much is it worth? When are the disbursements, uh, the individual sort of tranches of cash being dispersed to the to the contractor? What were the original objectives of that aid? Um, and, and then, you know, are there evaluations available that show us what the actual impact of, of an initiative is? And I think that aid transparency as a concept, it, it, it encompasses all of that information that one might want um, in order to evaluate the kind of the efficacy of aid. So, so a good example of where donors are trying to be transparent to, uh, say, citizens or stakeholders in their own countries would be um, the British government, the UK aid uh, dev tracker portal, okay, which provides a really um, granular insight into the activities of UK aid as it is dispersed through um, international non-governmental organizations or through multilateral agencies or through development finance institutions or through the UN, for example. Um, now, their platform um, is uh, as a portal. It's it's branded as, as UK aid and so on. Um, but it is drawing data from a data set that has been uh, written in a in a in a coded language called uh, IATI, which is the International Aid Transparency Initiative Standard. So. Back in. I'm going to say we're going to get into uh, acronyms. If you're ever talking about aid and development, we'll, we'll go deep into the acronyms. But thank you for defining that. Yeah, sure. Um, so you know, IRT was born as a as a kind of as a language for aid transparency to be communicated. Um, IRT was born back in uh, 2008 when at the uh, Accra meetings. Um, it was initially promoted by DFID and a whole bunch of other stakeholders that we needed a, a single language in which to communicate aid and development activity, um, a language that could be, um, you know, would allow us to compare different activities undertaken by different governments and different donor agencies and different NGOs. Um, and, and that's how we ended up with the IRT standard. And we, we currently have more than a thousand organizations globally, including most of the major donors uh, and development banks and so forth, um, and most of the major INGOs. We have them publishing data in this language to what is called the IRT registry. And the dev tracker portal that I was just referring to um, sort of uses that same data um, so DFID doesn't have to publish um, over and over again in different formats. It's, it's aid activities. It can publish once and it can be used um, to provide visualizations and information about, about what, what DFID is actually doing. What's an example of um, a term of art in that IATI language? So the IATI standard is, is kind of like a typology that allows um, you to report many, many fields of data for an activity. And I think at the last check, there were hundreds of fields that you could potentially provide information on. A prime example and something that's really important to stakeholders at the local level would be something like subnational location. 
So this is the actual, this is where you would enter for a aid um, program or development program, you would enter the actual GPS coordinates of a um, of that activity. And then when all of that information is, is, if you imagine that then within the IRT registry, so imagine an enormous database, um, it allows users to come in and filter by, in that case, geographic location, but by donor, by year, um, by sort of commencement date of the activity or closure date of the activity. Um, so IRT helped to, with the standard, they helped to, to standardize the terminology that we use to describe aid activities, uh, ergo allowing us to um, put the information in a format um, that was was then comparable across multiple different um, types of aid organization. Interesting, interesting. So, so basically the idea is that donors and other members of the development community sought to kind of streamline the kind of information that they would provide to each other and to the world in order, presumably, to like maximize the impact of their, their aid activities. But also, presumably, a platform like this is only as strong as the kind of number and enthusiasm in which donors and other members of the development community engage with it. Is that yeah. fair? No, that's fair. There's a number of factors that are important to consider. You will have, for a start, you'll have just the number of organizations that are contributing to the kind of the global aid map, as it were. Um, so obviously, if we were missing any major aid agencies providing information in that language, then that would leave a hole. Um, our Aid Transparency Index, which we launched last week, highlighted uh, an example of that, which is um, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs doesn't uh, doesn't publish data in the IRT language, although it does publish certain aid information about what it does. But because it's it's missing from that IRT data set, we then we then have a bit of a gap there. So. Yeah, we want, you know, ideally we'd have a full, a complete tapestry of all the organizations that are providing aid funds. We would then have um, organizations reporting on a timely basis. So, you know, the, the the aspiration is that we get all major organizations publishing on a monthly basis. Um, you would hope that organizations would be publishing uh, quality information. So that is using the majority of the fields that are available to provide a really comprehensive uh, overview of what they're their activities are, and then providing them sort of consistently and, and comparably, um, uh, so that so that you can compare those against the the activities of other organisations. Um, what aid agencies would you say are the most transparent that use the platform, perhaps most enthusiastically and diligently? Yeah. So, so the Aid Transparency Index, uh, which is one of our flagship research reports, uh, we launched uh, the latest edition. We produce every two years. We launched the latest edition just last week. Um, and this included 47 aid agencies, development, uh, finance institutions, uh, philanthropic organizations. So we had a real mix in there. Um, it was actually, uh, and we, we rank those 47 agencies against, we use um, a combination of software and, and, and manual checks uh, on tens of thousands of documents, the manual checks are, um, to to, uh, to sort of calibrate their data against 35 indicators we um that we have used and that we've shared with the community and, and consulted with the community on and the long and the short of it is we end up with a ranking um in the report um at the top of the ranking we have those organizations that, that score very good and good and at the bottom as you can imagine it's those who are poor and very poor now um at the very good end in the latest aid transparency index um the majority or there were a large number of development finance institutions 
um, who were scoring quite highly. So that would be groups like the Asian Development Bank and the African Development Bank and the World Bank IDA um, and, and the Inter-American Development Bank. Now, I should say that for Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank, um, we were only able to assess their sovereign portfolios um, because they weren't providing data on their uh, private portfolios. But nonetheless, those organizations scored very well across the suite of our indicators. Um, so that's across information relating to the activity itself, information that helps you evaluate their performance and, and so forth. But we also had some UN agencies in the top 10. We had UNDP um, and UNICEF. Uh, we had some uh, what are known as vertical funds. So Global Fund and Gavi uh, were in there. And then in terms of bilateral agencies, uh, we had US's Millennium Challenge Corporation, uh, UK's Department for International Development and uh, Global Affairs Canada. On, on the bottom end was uh, China, which d was not terribly transparent. Are there any um, examples of like large age aid, aid, aid China's you know aid agency isn't particularly you know large. Are there any um, large donors that don't score very well on this? Uh, so if we go tracker? through the the bottom ten, um, the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Denmark, uh, Norway. Uh, Ireland, Saudi Arabia, we have the US Defense Department, we have uh, the UAE, Japan, and Turkey's um, International Cooperation Agency. So that forms the bottom 10. So some of those are spending significant amounts of funds. I'm thinking specifically, if you think about Saudi Arabia's um, spend in Yemen, um, approximately $4 billion a year, that's a significant amount of, that's a significant contribution within a certain uh, response, let alone um, as, as a contribution to the global um, figures. Um, but there are some sizable agencies in there. So there is work to be done, for sure, on getting all um, major aid spenders to provide this information on a regular basis and in, in the uh, IIT standards so that we can compare. But the, 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 the message that's come out of this year's um, the 2028 Transparency Index is primarily we have, we have more uh, and better quality and more frequently updated data than we've, than we've ever had. Um, but the one bit that's that's persistently been a challenge for the last few years is we have um, a significant gap in in impact data. So this is data on what were the objectives of an activity, um, how did that activity perform against those objectives in terms of evaluations uh, were done or, or or impact measurements. So this is something that we as a, a wider community need to focus. I'm wondering if since the advent of IATI, can you draw a straight line to perhaps more um, efficient uh, aid outcomes and aid delivery? Um, you know, if, if presumably if donors can see what other donors are doing, they could map their own strategies accordingly. Do you have any sort of data to back up whether or not that's actually happening or even anecdotes to suggest that, you know, this platform is being used to more efficiently streamline aid and, and boost the impact yeah. of that? So that's aid? a great question. And it's something that uh, I think all of us in the aid transparency community wrestle with. There's certainly the anecdotes. There's certainly the cases of how this data um, has been used to identify gaps in aid provision to certain countries or in certain sectors. Um, there's examples of where this this uh, IATI data is packaged and provided to stakeholders as a means of uh, to, as a means of organisations sort of being transparent themselves. I gave the example of Diffid earlier, whose systems uh, kind of run off of this data. Um, what we have seen recently, and, and, and something we mentioned at the launch last week, is we've seen uh, the US's um, foreign aid explorer 
uh, tool which they they have online, um, which has something called the the, um, the landscape tool, which allows users to identify all of the aid that's flowing into a country of interest. And this was developed very much. It was developed by USAID, and it was developed very much at the request of mission directors who were saying, look, in order for us to establish, to develop our strategies and understand the landscape of donors and activities in which we're operating in, in the countries where we're based, we really have to have uh, access to, to this information on a dashboard that makes it easy to understand and that, that we can then share um, with our counterparts in those in those other organizations. And what we've heard since then, and, and other tools like this have been developed, but the Foreign Aid Explorer landscape tool is, is, is one of the better examples. Um, what we've heard since then is that now the data is really being used to A, develop strategies in country, but B, as a foundation for discussion with counterparts. And that does a couple of things. One, of course, it means we have better evidence-based decision-making. Um, but secondly, it also helps us understand um, in terms of feedback loops, because we, to date, there has been um, not as many users of the data as we might have hoped. And that has put us in a position where, therefore, errors in the data, simple omissions or, or mistakes can, can live for some time in the information and can cause problems for people who are using it further down the line. But now we have more people using that information. We have this feedback loop. So it's it's working to improve the quality of the data on a on a daily basis. Kind of stepping back a, a little bit, presumably having access to all this information through IATI gives you a kind of bird's eye view of global trends in aid. I'm wondering what trends were you seeing broadly before the pandemic, and how have those trends been impacted by the pandemic? That's a great question. Um, I mean, you know, we've we've seen recently the increase in capitalization of development finance institutions. That's one example. And we've seen this in a number of countries where um, those institutions, so whether you're thinking of the Development Finance Corporation in the US or the UK's own um, Commonwealth Development Corporation, CDC, um, or others throughout throughout Europe and the world, um, we've seen there um, the use of ODA through those development finance institutions to, to um, invest in private markets and, and sometimes sovereign investments as well. But we've seen them definitely um, increasing. Uh, we've also seen ODA, official development assistance, being distributed through more and more um, government agencies in many countries. Um, so rather than it just being through the traditional aid agency, uh, we've seen in a number of countries that, you know, institutions like health departments, might be working on, say, the Ebola response, for example, or, or other responses and might need funding uh, to, to, uh, to help contribute to the response. Um, but to give you an example, in, here in the UK, we have um, overseas development assistance currently spent by 17 government departments. Um, so that, uh, that's often a statistic that surprises people when they believe that DFID and maybe our foreign office are the, are the only organisations that, that spend it. So um, and then finally, we're seeing as a response maybe to COVID, um, we're definitely seeing a kind of a rise in, in nationalist aid policy. We're seeing some development finance institutions being authorized to make investments on their own soil. Really? Like what, what, what example so of that? I hadn't seen that. Corporation in the U.S. Oh, yeah. really? That, so this is a brand new entity um, created just last year. Um, it's been financed, and now they're spending it here in the United so they States. They have been authorized that. to. Now, Mark, I'm about to run out of intellectual rope at this point because I don't have our um, U.S. team on the uh, on the line. But um, 
but as I understand it, authorization has been provided, um, given the nature of what's happening in the US and around the world for the development finance corporation to make certain investments um, on on home soil or, or um, for um, into institutions that are based in the US that maybe it wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And that that decision was made early on. Interesting. So um, along, I mean, along these lines, you know, in the UK, there was recently this proposal by the government to potentially combine DFID um, with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So basically, for an American audience, kind of, you know, more combining the development aid uh, arm of the government with the diplomacy arm of the government. And I, I know lots of people in the development community are kind of up in arms about this because DFID has such a stellar reputation as being a particularly effective aid agency um, that, you know, that might undermine um, its potential uh, efficacy in the future. Um, do you, I mean, do you think the kind of COVID moment is what is sort of causing or inspired uh, the government to want to combine these um, two functions? I'm not sure. I think there's been a, a number of discussions in the UK about what drove the government to try and uh, or to 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 push for this merger. And, and it is now going ahead. We're expecting the new Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office to be established uh, as of uh, September this year. Um, I think there's a number of reasons, arguably, why the government might have wanted to do this. Of course, on the face of it, the explanation is one of um, joining up diplomacy and aid for a better um, impact on on both fronts for for uh, for the UK. I mean, earlier you mentioned DFID as as being ranking very high in the transparency index, and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office from bank, ranking very low. Are you concerned that the merger might? Um, reduce DFID's uh, transparency? Yes. So we are extremely nervous about um, the state of uh, the potential state of transparency, aid transparency here in the UK. And it's for a number of reasons. It's There is a stark difference between the transparency of DFID and the Foreign Commonwealth Office. And that's exhibited by the fact that DFID are in the top 10 of our A transparency index and the Foreign Commonwealth Office are in the bottom 10. And it's, it's you know, an example of, of where the Foreign Commonwealth Office falls down is on its impact data. It provides almost no um, objectives, evaluations, results for its, for its aid spending. Um, but it's also, this is, an, another factor is that the UK government set um, some targets which were aspirational and, and I think admirable, um, which were that all overseas development assistance spent by the UK government, so this is approximately £15 billion as of last year, regardless of which agency it goes through, should meet the standard of good or very good in our in our methodology. Um, and this has helped drive an improvement in aid transparency in the UK as the, as the money's spread more thinly across across more and more departments, some of whom have limited experience of spending overseas development assistance, um, those targets are about to expire. And the government hasn't given confidence that they will be reinstated. At the same time, um, and I'm sure you've seen the same news that we've seen, uh, two fundamental pieces of the scrutiny puzzle in the UK are their future is in question. Those are the Parliamentary International Development Committee, and it's not been confirmed that that will continue in its current um, guise. Um, and the Independent Commission on Aid Impact, which is does exactly what it says. It does a series of reviews and in-depth research and analysis to, to hold the government accountable on various aspects of, of how we spend aid. Um, it's highly respected. It's globally regarded. And it's a model that has been replicated in other countries. 
Um, and those two entities have not been, the government hasn't confirmed that they will exist in a form that is acceptable to stakeholders here. So, okay, we do have, we have had commitments that 0. our commitment to 0.7% of our gross national income aid budget will will uh, continue, which is obviously hugely important. And in the UK here is, is a, a matter that's enshrined in law. Um, and we have had um, confirmation from the government that we will continue as a nation to adhere to the OECD's um, Development Assistance Committee rules on, on overseas development assistance. Those are positive for sure, and, and we'd expect those to be the minimums. But in a circumstance where we may, where we don't know if we're going to continue to have our two most important um, and rigorous scrutiny bodies, and at a time where the government is saying that uh, hasn't given confidence that we will continue to have aid transparency targets here, then you can understand why we're why we're particularly nervous. So we're pushing for the UK government to to reinstate those targets. We're pushing for the UK government to continue its global leadership. You've got to remember that um, BIFID was was uh, very much front and centre at the start of the aid transparency movement as far back as 2008, and and pushing for IRT and initially funding um, IRT to get off of the ground. Um, and, you know, it needs to continue to uh, as a thought leader in that space, as an example to other bilateral organisations. There's only one bilateral organisation that um, scores better on transparency than DFID, and that's the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Uh, others others still need to do a bit of catching up. Um, and 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 that's really our, that's really our message to the government that we need to see this commitment. We need to see um confidence provided that these things will stay in place in order to make sure that UK aid is continues its world leading mm -hmm. reputation. And, and it really is worth emphasizing that it does have a world leading reputation. I think that's in part because it seems to have support across the political spectrum in the UK. I mean, successive conservative governments have, have established those committees that you just described and have maintained that commitment to that 0.7 uh, development assistance target. Um, so it's just interesting, though, now um, we're seeing seemingly a potential that those commitments may not may not be maintained. Well, the, the not 0.7 commitment maintained, but the other aspects of the UK's leadership in this space not maintained, potentially through the merger sure. of, U, uh, and we, and and we FCO. See we see these these elements that I've spoken of, the scrutiny, the aid transparency targets, and then the, the leadership on aid transparency. We see these as the kind of the insurance policies, because it's going to be difficult, even with the best will in the world and all of the expertise, both within DFID and the Foreign Commonwealth Office that needs to come together now to form this new institution. It's going to be difficult to uh, to, to avoid both, um, the, I guess it's the perception of conflicts of interest that is the concern. You know, as these two offices are brought together, um, there is going to be a conflict in their mandates. And, and while we have confidence that this will be, you know, well managed and that there will be the checks and balances in place um, to ensure that there aren't any, you know, scandals, is there's always the risk of perception of of, of of scandals or conflicts of interest, and 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 transparency is the perfect sunlight to be cast on their their operations. And if we can see where the money's going at a granular level, if we can see how the procurement's being done, if we can see how the decisions are being made and the priorities are being set, then we can have confidence that um, that that that, that money's being spent well, which frees up 
this new institution to to go ahead and do what it needs to do, which is take on some of the biggest um, development challenges in the world, especially at a time of COVID. Uh, well, Gary, thank you so much, yeah, thank you so much for your Mark. time. It's very it. helpful. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Gary. That was helpful and interesting. And uh, we have some great episodes coming up in the near future. So stay tuned. All right. Stay safe, everyone. As always, reach out to me if you have questions for me or suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I always love hearing from you. Just hit me up using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. See you next time. Bye.